...turned in some of the bloodiest wars Europe had witnessed. It was a pageant of British triumphalism, but for organisation it would hardly have won a skirmish, because in fact, as Greville noted, few, including the Queen, knew what was going on. The different actors in the ceremonial were very imperfect in their parts and had neglected to rehearse them. Lord John Thin, who officiated for the Dean of Westminster, told me that nobody knew what was to be done except the Archbishop and himself, and the Queen never knew what she was to do next. She said to John Thin, "'Pray tell me what I am to do, for they don't know.' And at the end, when the orb was put into her hand, she said to him, "'What am I to do with it?' "'Your Majesty is to carry it, if you please, in your hand.' "'Am I?' she said." It is very heavy. The ruby ring was made for her little finger instead of the fourth, on which the rubric prescribes that it should be put. She said it was too small, and she could not get it on. He said it was right to put it there, and he insisted. She yielded, but had first to take off her other rings, and then this was forced on. It was said that a million people watched the procession although how they were counted is anyone's guess, and probably was. But the real business of royalty was not the business of pageantry. More important to the young queen was that she be sure to understand what was expected of her, and for others to understand what she expected. The Baroness Leitzen had been Princess Victoria's confidant, but Queen Victoria now needed more than a trusted governess. Melbourne was wary of letting anyone become the power behind the throne of the young queen, and so he took on that role himself. This meant that he was with her for hours at a time every day. They wrote to each other sometimes three or four times a day. At royal dinners, the guest of honour would be at the queen's right hand, but Melbourne was always at her left. As they came to know more of each other, it became obvious that this was no ordinary relationship between monarch and prime minister. Melbourne and Victoria were so close that London joked of a romance, although all knew there could be none. The Prime Minister was undoubtedly attracted to the young Queen, and she to him, but this was no affair of the heart. Here is Melbourne, now in his late fifties, perhaps tiring of the spark of fashionable drawing-rooms, of St. James's Clubland. He is a man who at heart is a poet and romantic, and who is now able to trust his instincts to the frankly romantic figure, who one moment is a bubbling eighteen-year-old, and the next the most powerful woman in Britain. And here is Victoria, who needs someone whose affection is uncomplicated, someone she may trust, a secret sharer, someone she watches across the room, someone for whom perhaps she feels something deeper than feelings for a dearest father. And there is a political effect to all this. Remember, Melbourne is a Whig. Melbourne is her friend, so she is enveloped by kind, thoughtful Whiggery. And for the moment, while Melbourne is there, Victoria believes, as she wrote to Prince Albert, that the Whigs are the only safe and loyal people. But the Whigs will not be in power for long, even though Melbourne will continue to be an influence at court. By the time Queen Victoria came to the throne, the Whigs had shot their bolt. The court and governing circles were isolated and unpopular. The middle classes were fearful of unrest and beginning to vote for the Tories, Meanwhile, Lord Melbourne, who had little faith in lawmaking, with grace and pleasantness, was doing nothing. On top of all this, there appeared towards the end of the year the first signs of a great economic depression. Conditions in the industrial north soon became as bad as after Waterloo, more than twenty years earlier.
and in May 1838, a group of working-class leaders published a People's Charter. Chartism, as it was called, in which some historians discern the beginnings of socialism, was the last despairing cry of poverty against the machine age. The Chartists, believing like the agitators for reform before 1832 that an extension of the franchise would cure all their miseries, demanded annual parliaments, universal male suffrage, equal electoral districts, the removal of the property qualification for membership of Parliament, the secret ballot, and the payment of members. Their only hope of success was to secure, as the Radicals had done, the backing of a parliamentary party and of the progressive middle classes. But they deliberately refused to bid for middle-class support. Their leaders quarrelled among themselves and affronted respectable people by threatening and irresponsible speeches. Whenever conditions improved, the popular temper cooled, and no united national movement emerged as a permanent force. In 1839, Viscount Melbourne resigned as Prime Minister over a constitutional issue which involved the Jamaican Assembly refusing to do as it was told by the government in London. The matter went to a Commons vote, and although the government won, the majority was so small that Melbourne felt he had to go. Then followed the so-called bedchamber crisis, when Sir Robert Peel, who'd been asked to form a government, was told by the Queen that he could not dictate which of her ladies of the bedchamber should remain in her service. So Melbourne returned as Prime Minister after all. As a result, Queen Victoria may have got her friend back in Downing Street, but she ruled over a less-than-satisfied kingdom and empire. Melbourne himself was tired. He was 60, but perhaps felt older. He was sometimes vague, forgetful. His party, the Whigs, were in much the same condition, and the country knew it. The Whigs had survived for as long as they had, perhaps because they were simply the most acceptable alternative to the strengthened radical movement on the one hand and the Tories on the other. The Whigs were good at giving ground when the governing of the country needed compromise. But Melbourne knew this could not go on. Melbourne's instinct was simply to avoid the disagreeable. But that policy could not be maintained indefinitely when the country faced so many difficulties. For example, there was a general recognition that the poor laws were not working properly. More accurately, the poor laws were working as their administrators intended them to work, which was not right and proper. But main attention was increasingly focused far away from the welfare of poorhouse tenants. There was a whiff of war in the Victorian air. In fact, there were two wars, one in Afghanistan, the other in China, the first Afghan war and the Opium War. The British have fought three Afghan wars, in 1838, again in the 1870s, and then in 1919. During all that time, the British and Russians tried to outdo each other for control of the country. Afghanistan is, or was, a land of some 245,000 square miles. In the 19th century, it was a large and often inhospitable buffer between British interests in India and the Russians, and perhaps the Persians. The belief was that whoever controlled Afghanistan could thereby threaten or defend their interests with some assurance. The Russian threat to India had begun to overhang the minds of Englishmen. It was, in fact, a gross exaggeration to suppose that Russian armies could have crossed the ranges of the Hindu Kush in force and arrived in the Indus Valley, but the menace seemed real at the time. 
When it was learnt that a small body of Russians had penetrated into the fringes of Afghanistan, a British expedition was dispatched in 1839 to Kabul, and a British candidate placed on the Afghan throne. Here's the source of conflict. The Russians supported the claims to the Afghan throne of a man called Dost Muhammad. The British candidate was the very unpopular Shah Jusha. The result was a disaster. The country rose up in arms. In December 1841, under promise of a safe conduct, the British garrison of some 4,000 troops, accompanied by nearly three times as many women, children and Afghan camp followers, began to withdraw through the snow and the mountain passes. The safe conduct was violated, and nearly all were murdered or taken prisoners. Only a handful of survivors reached India in the following January. A second expedition avenged the treachery in the following year, but the repute of European arms was deeply smitten, and the massacre resounded throughout the peninsula. Reputations counted for little when it came to profit and loss sheets in the British counting houses, and so it was with the commercial events which led to what became known as the Opium Wars. Again, we're in 1839, but the focus has moved eastwards. Opium farming was a profitable business for the English East India Company, and an examination of their accounts shows that the directors were proud of the trade. Officially, the Chinese banned opium imports, but some of their officials in Canton, then the only emporium through which foreign merchants were allowed into China, were corrupt and opium was stored in large warehouses. A senior Chinese official was sent to Canton to have the millions of pounds worth of opium destroyed. The British sent troops and the Opium War began. It went on until the summer of 1842, when the heat was so intense that many of the troops died not from wounds, but from sunstroke. In August of that year, a truce was signed. The treaty...